Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to 2 Peter toward the end of the New Testament. It might be easier to go from Revelation and move backwards to 2 Peter. You go Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, and then you come to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to focus on the question, how firm is your foundation? How firm is your foundation? In the past year, Deanna and I had to get our foundation and our home repaired. It took a lot of time and it was very costly, but very beneficial to our home. But in a greater sense, to not have the proper foundation in your life will cost you everything. And it will cost you eternity. And so how firm is your foundation? Well, let's think for a moment about how our current circumstances in our culture, just the uncertainty and the imbalance back and forth and all that's going on and all of the uncertainty, is that shaking you? Uh, is that causing you to quimber, quiver and to tremble? Uh, we should be able to stand firm on the foundation that God has given us. The reality is the godly will never outnumber the ungodly. Jesus said that. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be who find it, but broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many will go that way. And so we are living in that constant challenge with every brother and sister in Christ around the globe. How do you, how do you stand firm when the culture is shifting and changing and moving further and further away from God? And here's a man, Simon Peter, whom God was inspiring to write a word of encouragement to a church that was planted throughout the Roman Empire under hostile threatening martyrdom and all the things that they would face in that, that realm. And yet he does not spend a lot of time talking about the circumstances. He talks about the Savior and about the foundation upon which we stand. So today I, I want us to come to the understanding that your foundation determines your focus. Have you seen a believer who's put their faith and trust in Christ go through a, a storm in their life, perhaps grief, and, and they, they seem to just stand and to withstand that storm, not without tears in their eyes, not without a broken heart, but somehow there was this settled sense of contentment because they were standing on the firm foundation of Christ and his word. 
So your foundation determines your focus. And so if you are planted firmly on the foundation of Christ and his kingdom, then then your focus should be upward. I remember hearing of a man that was asked, how are you doing? His reply was, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. And the other man replied, brother, you need to get out from under those circumstances and get on the solid rock. And so I hope today that's the encouragement we get from God's word. So let's look together at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, as we think about how firm is your foundation. Beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let's pray. Father, you have confirmed and reconfirmed to us the very deity of your son, Jesus. You have reinforced that by the testimony of your word, by your presence among us and around us and within us. And Father, I pray that as we work through this passage today, that that confirmation would be even deepened in our hearts and that we would gain even a greater faith in the foundation upon which we stand. So I humbly ask that you would please speak through me today because unless it is you that speaks, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The context of what Peter is saying as God inspires him here is that I will continue to remind you of these things, he said just prior to the verses we read, and I'll try to ensure that you have something by which to remind you of the reality of what I have stated about the person of Christ and what I have heard him say about himself. And so he has uh, laid out a pathway of remembrance for the people to come back to that reassuring knowledge of the truths that are being proclaimed here. And so he begins in verse 16 by saying, 
For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, which we made known to you. Rather, we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I don't know if this has happened to you, but it it happens often when I hear things or people approach me. uh, They try to challenge what we believe. They question and, and try to get us to second guess the truths of God's word. That's why you have to be cautious about, quote, religious programs, unquote. They start out fine, and then they they drift. And when you drift, even when you're saying some good things over here, you've drifted too far to really say that, and it can become a snare. That's why so many people have been preyed upon by false religions. It's these fables that are concocted that, that lure them in because it becomes some kind of secret knowledge And it puffs them up, it feeds their pride. So I want to remind you today, you can stand strong on the foundation of God's truth. Uh, You don't have to bat an eye and you don't have to take a step back. You can stand firm in your faith. Because first of all, this passage is telling us that the foundation of our faith is anchored to fact, not fictitious fables. It is anchored to fact, not fictitious uh, stables or fables. Now, just think about all the false religions you've known anything about. They they start with the truth, they twist it, and they pervert it, and they, they lure you out, and then they create these fables, and sometimes they even publish them in the form of uh, like the Book of Mormon where the Bible is pushed aside and this is what you need. Or uh, some philosophy that uh, claims to believe in God but does everything practically to deny his existence. Or people who claim to preach the good news of Christ but it's not centered on Christ, it's centered on us. And it all becomes fables, or as we would call them, to ease that, we would call them fibs. It's all deception. Simon Peter says in verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. What he's saying is we didn't skillfully invent what we said. We didn't come up with this ourselves. This was divine revelation brought into our lives, and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I remember when I was a junior in high school, uh, we were, I was in a class, we were doing our very first research paper. And so the teacher was asking us to choose a topic. And so... I chose the death of Jesus Christ. And so people went up there and 
I remember one guy that didn't sit far from me wanted to do his research paper on out-of-the-body experiences because he and the teacher had talked about those common experiences they had had out of their mind, I mean, out of their bodies. And so one by one, people marched up to her desk, handed her their topic, and she put a check mark on it, and they went back to their seat. Well, when I happened to go to the desk, and I handed it to her, she said, you can't do this. And I said, why can I not do it? She said, you'll not find enough information on it. And I said, oh, there's a lot of information. She said, well, you can't use the Bible. You would have to use other sources. And I said, is everybody else not able to use eyewitness accounts? Because I figured an out-of-the-body experience was not going to be scientifically undergirded. And she said, no, you cannot use the Bible. And I said, well, I want to try. So go ahead and do the paper. So I went over to the library, which was the next thing we did, and I found a godly librarian there who was married to one of the coaches, both godly people. We discussed it. I kind of shared it in pieces, and she said, we're going to see that you're able to do this paper. And so we set out. And um, so I came back, and I said, you're right. I'm going to have to change the title of my paper. I'm going to do it on the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. The death was too broad. And she said, okay, but I have to approve every source that you use. And I said, in my heart, good. And so each source that I turned in, I would have it well opened, lined up to the meaning of the cross of Christ. Because at this point, it didn't matter what my grade was going to be. What mattered was the condition of her heart. And just the, the testimony outside the Bible about that type of death and about the coming together of things that the Bible had said, but others were saying about it, uh, verified the very truth of God's word. And it, it hammered away at, at her unbelief and disbelief and it buttressed my belief and my faith in Christ. I never really knew what effect it had until later in the course. She started sharing about a book she had just read called The Hiding Place. And she said, I hope that I have as much faith as she did if I ever faced those circumstances. So we never know what standing firm on the truth of God's word, what kind of impact that can have. And so here, Peter emphasizes we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John says, that which we have seen and heard and touched and experienced, we relate to you. Now, many people would say, well, you don't have the original gospels, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, 
really, they don't have originals of other things, but the dates go right back really close to the Bible. We'll talk about that next week. But, but the reality is these were men who were eyewitnesses. Remember, Peter and John were not just one of the 12. They were one of the three closest to Jesus. They were invited into experiences. The others were left at a distance. Remember when they came to the home of Jarius, whose daughter was dead, and, and he took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went in, and he raised her from the dead. You remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he was pouring his heart out to the Father and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and it was Peter, John, and James that were brought into that. So the 12 were eyewitnesses, but the three had a, an up-close look at the magnificence of his majesty. And so he says, we saw the display of his glory and a preview of his kingdom. I don't know of a better place to look for a source to listen to, do you? So if you turn back to Matthew chapter 17, uh, you, you find the continuation of this. I'll read it as you turn there, uh, the rest of this here. In verse 17, it says, We are eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory from heaven itself. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then he says, And we have heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That scene is described in Matthew chapter 17. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. When you think about something being transfigured, uh, we might get it confused with being disfigured or morphed into something it wasn't before. That's not at all what the scene is here. What happens here is, is his his the veil of his flesh is pulled aside and they see him in his glorious heavenly being. They're overwhelmed by the magnificence of the radiance and the brilliance of who Jesus really is. So here's what happened. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it, it is good for us to be here. If, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus 
only. What a scene that must have been. First, being overwhelmed by the brilliance of his majesty. This one who had left the corridors of heaven and left the throne of the universe and and become a man in the form of a baby and and had grown and developed and, and become a sinless man. A miracle worker, a great teacher, but yet humbled and restricted in a human body. But on this mount, everything was rolled away to where they saw who he really was. And then in confirmation of that reality, two men of the Old Testament appear, Moses and Elijah, standing there with Jesus. In other parts of the gospels, we hear what they discussed. They were discussing with him the coming of the cross. Let me ask you, why do you think it was Moses and Elijah? We might have chosen to put David there, Moses and David, or maybe Abraham and David, but it's Moses and Elijah. Well, Moses was the lawgiver. You remember the law of God came through Moses and it was the law that magnified the need of people have for God because it's not just that we break the law, but the law breaks us and it breaks us down to where we see we are incomplete and we are sinful and in need of a savior. And so Moses as the lawgiver had pointed us to the life giver who would be Jesus. And then there's Elijah. He was a prophet. He was a speaking prophet who stood strong in an ungodly culture with an ungodly king and an ungodly queen. And he stood against Ahab and Jezebel. And as he stood there, God blessed and used him as he spoke forth the word of God. And you remember collectively what the prophets did? They put a searchlight down through the tunnel of time, getting glimpses of who the Savior would be, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And remember Jesus said, you search the scriptures and you look in the law and the prophets and there you find me. There's the lawgiver and the forth teller talking to Jesus. And it's an overwhelming scene to Peter. It's such a heavenly sense of peace and well-being. Peter wants to stay there, but then a cloud envelops them. Moses and Elijah are taken away. The voice speaks, this is my beloved son, In him I am well pleased. Hear him. And then when the cloud lifts, they saw only Jesus. Now just think about it. The law can't save you. Keeping the law doesn't please God. Having the gift of prophecy to tell all mysteries 
isn't all pleasing to God, only his son, Jesus. He is the life giver. He is the love gift of God, the father to the world. And that's not a fable and it's not fictitious. It's a fact worthy of your faith. It was verified and Peter had a front row seat and he saw his glory expressed in such a magnificent way that he was driven to his face on the ground in the presence of such holy, godly majesty. And so when we read the scriptures, they have their initial source somewhere in the life of an eyewitness who beheld the person of Jesus. There's a book entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's so true, isn't it? It takes more faith to believe everything happened than to just believe in the fact that God did it. And that fact is worthy of your faith. So the foundation of our faith is anchored to fact, not fictitious fables. But then if you turn back to 2 Peter 1, look at the second part of what we're looking at, verse 19. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which will do well to which you will do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts. Not only is the foundation of our faith anchored to fact and not fictitious fables, but the foundation of our faith is the word of God, not the words of men. Without exception, a false religion will point to a man. They'll point to his words. They'll push aside the Bible and and here's the man. No, this is God. And our faith is in the word of God, not the words of men. Men retract their words. Men adapt their words. Men have to correct their words, but God's word never changes. And so that's what we have here. We have also the prophetic word, which is even more sure than an experience. It's the truth of God's word. So when it says messianic, when it says uh, the prophetic word, it's talking about all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, when you put the prophecies and the allusions, not illusions, but allusions where it alludes to Christ together, there's over 300 of those in the Old Testament. The odds of like 10 of those being fulfilled, mathematical minds have put it out there, there's so many zeros to this, one out of this many for just 10 to be fulfilled would be virtually improbable. And so to kind of wrap smaller minds around that, like mine, I'm not gonna say yours, but mine, 
Someone has compared it to taking the state of Texas when there's not a coin shortage, taking the state of Texas, covering it and filling it with silver dollars two feet deep all over Texas. And just imagine that from Galveston up to the panhandle over to the edge of the promised land next to New Mexico, over next to the Texas Junior Varsity, Louisiana, all those places, everywhere in between, from Last Buddy to Houston, to gas, from Gasoline, Texas, to San Antonio, all points in between, covered two feet deep. Well, before they did that in this thing, they, they said, when you begin, you put an X on one of them. And you throw it out in the middle of Texas, and then you stir it up. And you shuffle them up. Then you put someone in a helicopter. And they tell the pilot, Go. And the pilot begins to just travel all over Texas. And the passenger with the parachute, blindfolded, says, okay, here. So he begins to hover and he jumps. Parachute opens, he drops to the ground, blindfolded, digs around in the silver dollars, trying to decide which one reaches over. Ta-da, he got it. He got the one with the X on it. That would be the odds of 10 to a dozen of those being fulfilled, but over 300 were fulfilled exactly. That's how certain God's word is. We have that prophetic word. It, it was a searchlight looking down through the tunnel of time, but now the scripture is a spotlight on the one who came in fulfillment of all of that. And so he, he comes as the light of the world. And that theme is picked up here in verse 19. Uh, this is a prophetic word. Made more sure which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. That word dark doesn't quite get to the meaning of the Greek word there. The, the word there means a neglected place or a parched place, a squalid place, a dirty and murky place. Not just dark, but just filthy, murky, dirty. It, it pictures like a, a dank, dark dismal swamp or a dark, dank cellar. Just think about the, the trip human history has taken. It started in a beautiful, perfect garden and now it's a dank, dark, murky swamp. And we wonder, why do people act like they do? They are murky swamp creatures living without light, 
loving the swamp. So how do we take the Bible and look at that? Because here in verse 19, it says that, that we are to heed that prophetic word as a light that shines in that dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, back in John chapter one, remember what it said about Jesus when he came? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the darkness, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then it further goes down in verse nine, that was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so the light came and the darkness couldn't deal with it, couldn't comprehend it. So those who put their faith and trust in Christ as his people are called to be a, a reflection of his light. We are to walk in his light and to live in his light and to shed light on a, a dark and murky swamp in which we live. It's not our goal to clean up the swamp or, or clear out the filth and the stench, our, our goal is to shine his light there. Not to curse the swamp, but to shine his light on it. Because the biggest problem is not that swamp creatures are acting like swamp creatures. The problem is saved people are not acting like saved people. So let me read some scriptures and and rather than you turning there, hopefully you can write these down there, uh, write the references down. Just think about these verses about light in a dark place. First of all, in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, it says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 14, says this. To Christians, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Then Ephesians 5, 8 through 14 talks about our identity. For you were once darkness. You once lived in the swamp. You loved the cellar. You were a cellar dweller. You loved it there. You didn't want to come out, but the grace of God broke into that cellar and got you free. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no 
fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. How do you expose them? You shed the light on it by your character and by the word of God. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. And then John chapter three, we know verse 16 fairly well, but let's look at verses 18 and following. He who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. When is most crime committed in your, I mean, just a guess, I haven't looked at statistics, but in the dark, All those images of light and darkness. We're, we're children of light. The, the word of God is, is our light and our lamp. It, it guides us and, and his word is to be reflected in us. His glory is to be reflected in us to the extent that others see something unique about us and then we give them the connection of why we are different. So we are to hold forth the word of God as light that shines in a dark place until. I love that until. How long are we gonna be doing this? I don't know. That's not a good answer. That you're doing something that's tough. Well, until. If I can get the until and I know there's an end to this, it makes it a little easier, doesn't it? We're to hold forth the light of God's truth until, until the day dawns. It, it's not talking about a, a 24-hour day. It's talking about the, the day of Christ's coming. Until the holy light of God returns in the person of Christ until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, just think about this. How many of you used a flashlight to get here this morning? Why not? With the sun, you don't need it. Anybody have to turn their headlights on so they could see? Or maybe their, their dome lights so they could see something on their dash? No. When the sun is shining, there's no need for lesser lights. And there will come a day when Jesus returns. 
And that morning star will rise in our hearts and, and be there, we'll be there in his midst celebrating the truth and the reality of what we put our faith and trust in, and that's the fact of who he is. Much like a lamp at night anticipates and is outshined by the bright morning star, so Old Testament prophecy looks ahead to the coming of Christ, the bright morning star, one commentator said. So, so what's a morning star? It literally means the light bringer, the light bringer. Did you know you have no light in and of yourself, spiritually? You're not the light source. We're kind of like the moon. Talk about the moon shining. The moon, moon doesn't shine, it reflects. It's just a big reflector of the brilliance of the sun. We will never be the center of the universe, the, the son of God. We'll never be the center of eternity, the son of God. We are simply reflectors of his light. And if I have any light in my life, it doesn't originate with me, it originates with him. He is the light bringer. He brought light into a dark world and people love Darkness and hated the light is the testimony. But when you come to the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 16, it says this, Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Remember, that's how Revelation starts. And then he says, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. What an amazing reality that is. Just as sure as his first coming, he will come again. And only a fool that could look at the evidence that pointed to his first coming would dare to doubt that this one will be back. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Literally, the fool said in his heart, no God. So I wonder today, are you living in light or darkness? How do you know? Well, it's all about your foundation. Is your foundation anchored to fictitious fables and you just want to hear something new and something tentilating? Or is it anchored to fact and not fictitious fables? And does your faith rest in the word of God and not the words of man? This is the revealed word of God. Have you put your trust not just in the reality and the reliability of the word of God, but have you put your trust in the God of the word? We don't worship a book. We worship a person. His name is Jesus. Have you personally put your faith and trust in him? He did come into the dark world. He shined light there. And the brightest light that he shined was on the darkest day of his earthly life when in the midst of of darkness at noonday, he cried out at three in the afternoon. 
It is finished. There on the cross, he paid for your sin. He purchased your salvation if you put your faith and trust in him. Have you done that? And if your life really is built on that foundation, then why are you trembling? Why are you fussing and fearing? Just stand in the storm, trusting him. Let's pray together. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.